Seguimos luchando! We continue fighting. I think, I hope I said that right. See, um, can we start soon? We should start now. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to episode number 14 of Turning Earth. 14, I didn't know that Tommy did. Yeah, I'm <laughs> keeping track. Nothing gets past me. Um, what are we talking about this time? We're going to talk about food sovereignty. Hello! <laughs> Um, As usual, everything will come in a very particular order and stuff. So, yeah. yes. <laughs> so, and that particular order will be. So, this is part one of a two part episode, people. In part one, uh, we'll be playing later now the interview with uh, Fergal Anderson, who is an, an organic farmer uh, based in County Galway. Both the interviews are class, very interesting. Yeah, that's why that's why we're having two parts because we it just would have been a shame to cut any of the stuff out of the, the yeah, conversations. Yeah, and when you don't know what to pick out, you know, and yeah. and, and, and uh, you know the interviews make sense as a piece as well. So why why yeah. Frankenstein them? You know what I mean? Uh, so in the part two, which will be out next week, you'll hear the conversation I had with Lucy O'Hagan, who is a, a wildlife tracker, a, a bushcraft instructor, an ethnobotanist, and a, a forest school practitioner. So we'll explain where all those things are. But it's basically she. Uh, kind of facilitates learning in the wild and rewilding kind of thing rewilding yeah so getting a uh, getting back in touch with your 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 local habitat your natural habitat like knowing what the what plants and animals exist in your bioregion in your neighborhood basically all the lost information and the lost interaction with the wild yeah that we've kind of cut ourselves off from as a species and as a society kind of get there's huge potential in ireland you know especially like it's a very yeah. old green country isn't it yeah um, and we're, it's the reason that that stuff's important and the reason it relates to food sovereignty, I think, is because you can't talk about either of those things without talking about biodiversity and without talking about species loss. Like we're, we're, yeah. we're heading for mass extinction, yeah. the sixth mass extinction. And we talk a lot about, in general, food production systems making them more diverse and getting away from the, the monocrop culture and the, the high kind of capitalistic output, and which is just incredibly bad. So yeah. it fits in very well with all of that. So... What's the kind of layout going to be? I suppose we'll we'll talk a bit first about what the current state of things is in terms of food production here in Ireland, how we get our food from, where we get our food from and how we get it. And uh, talk a bit about how we wound up in this scenario and then and then we'll uh, we play the interview with Fergal Anderson, um, which will kind of elaborate on those things further. With someone with hands on experience. Yeah, exactly. Someone who uh someone who knows what they're talking about, who not just not someone who just has notions about it like we do. Um <laughs> We're just facilitators at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, what we know about microphones and uh, laptops and the internet and stuff, that's our end of things. Yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, um, our podcast uh, has been sponsored by Glushock, the Glushock for Global Justice, who are an environmental justice NGO. Uh, they facilitate t- uh, various workshops like direct action training. They did one recently, I know, with Extinction Rebellion. And, uh, They're a very good organisation. Wouldn't want any other sponsor. So Glushock are sponsoring us because we're doing this sort of independent hands-on media and it's new media podcasting is huge now of course and we it's an opportunity for us to say the kind of things that might not be so some points that might not be made so easily in the likes of RT in the Irish Times not that we're a new source mm. we're more kind of news you, you might know this if you're a more recent listener we kind of do more news aggregation taking stories and sitting back a little bit and kind of dissecting the news stories a little bit and analyzing them and kind of looking at the overall picture and stuff but of course if we're aggregating news stories, then we're also sharing those news stories. But we're putting a bit of a spin on it where it's not, we're coming from an environmentalist point of view where, you know, at times environmentalism has in the past, I don't want to say this too blanket kind of way, but it can be quite elitist at times or it has been in certain quarters and you wouldn't necessarily have 
people of an environmentalist point of view that would also be very into say things like workers rights and analyze so we're kind of mixing a couple of different angles here coming at it from making it taking it away from being a, a sort of an elitist thing but also talking about there are things that need to be talked about we we talk a lot on this podcast about big big huge society changes that need to be made yeah, we're not of, afraid of making those points always that, talking about the big picture kind of exactly yeah which, looking, uh, looking back at the big picture but also saying things that might scare might be a bit scary but yeah. they're actually good yeah. but you're not stuff you're not going to hear in the Irish Times you're not going to hear the, like the Irish Times saying you know like we draw on the Irish Times as a source of news and what's happening but you're not going to hear them saying things like we need to get away from um, the kind of capitalism's profit driven motivations and actually get back to things like food production as the, the main point of producing food as opposed to generating profit that kind of thing you know real fundamental basic level stuff so and where do you, where do you agree with that kind of point or not the point of this is not is to is to I guess stimulate those kinds of conversations I, yeah, I, well, I'd hope that you'd come away from this come away from listening to this thinking about these things and wanting to talk about them because these things are can be difficult to talk stimulating about stimulating debate and there, there's a bit yeah. of taboo around some of the subjects we'll be talking about as well you know like oh, not, yeah, yeah, of course it's not socially acceptable really to be talking People people don't want to argue about politics. It's tiring, do you know what I mean? But like, <laughs> there are kinds of conversations. I think more people, the more people have those conversations, the better. As far as I'm concerned, yeah, absolutely. The more people you know, try and work this stuff. I I, I personally think the situation is better now than than it has been in the past. Oh yeah, because yeah, I think yeah. we mentioned this before in previous episodes about when it comes to climate change. Generally, we're no longer in the stage of denial. We're past that. We're into the kind of maybe panic. Yeah. stations end of things, which is actually good, you know, in the overall scheme of things. Not that I would personally be panicking, actually. But it's certainly better than being in denial about what's happening, you know. Mm. And um, we also like it's a really important thing. We don't come from you know an angle of having all the answers. It's more like we talk about things that are supposed to. We kind of extrapolate the principles from those things. So we'll, there'll be some examples as this episode goes on. So you'll have an idea. But we want to. We genuinely want to create uh, debate and uh, questions and stuff. We also encourage, by the way, people to get in contact with us if they want to make a point or disagree with us, especially. Or uh, want to ask us questions or uh, whatever. We have our email address is turningearthradio at gmail.com. Yeah, so please, any are. comments or questions and all the rest of it. And tell us we're wrong about something. That's kind of the whole point. You know, over time, we are hoping to also facilitate debates. Although that's not what we're necessarily doing now today. But um, uh, yeah, today we're going to be what we do sometimes. And in fact, a lot of the time is we'll focus more on a specific team rather than talking about a lot of the news. And that's why I think t- these next couple of episodes are going to be very focused around the issue of food sovereignty. Um, Absolutely. But uh, back to Glushuk, though, it's important to point out that although they've, they're facilitating us through by paying for our hosting, they don't necessarily endorse every single thing that we say. Yeah. I mean, they, they don't get to hear what we put out before it's put out there so yeah. you know don't like if we say something absolutely ridiculous come to us don't go to them yeah and say they, have no, they have no uh, what you call it editorial input zero um, yeah. yeah which is why it's such a good model I mean they're they're they're, they're donating to us in good faith you know yeah, yeah they're trusting us um, so, so let's, let's, <laughs> hope, let's hope they don't regret that <laughs> <laughs> we um, are trustworthy we are yeah um, well I certainly think we are but I would say that wouldn't I <laughs> you wouldn't say that Mr. Mark <laughs> Um, so we have a, we, we do have a, a couple of news stories that we wanted to talk to even though we're focusing more on the theme around our interviews in this episode but as, as always there are some news stories that we would like to that aren't necessarily directly related to the overall theme of the episode so is, is now a good time to get into yeah, those yeah, stories we'll yeah we'll get, talk about that a bit and then we'll get on to into the, the guts of the episode so what was it you wanted to talk about I have really one main thing that was a really nice bit of very good news we've talked before about the, the Shannon gas processing terminal this is the one 
that it is to be... So fracking has been banned in Ireland, very cynically. What has not been banned is importing fracked gas from other countries like the States and mm. processing it in Ireland. And that's yeah. what's supposed to be happening in County Kerry. Uh, so the Shannon LNG gas terminal. But uh, there has been some very, very good news that just broke just nearly exactly nearly two weeks ago now mm. on the 15th of February, I believe. And it is that developers of the Shannon gas processing terminal ordered not to begin construction. It has been delayed for at least 18 months. And basically the reason for that is that a high court judge has directed that the overall project will have to be, or the permission will have to be reviewed by the European Court of Justice, the ECJ. This is a really important victory. Obviously, at very least, it puts this off for a good long time. So there was permission granted, I believe, in 2008 and it ran out essentially. Mm. So in, 20, in last year, on board Planala, said, gave you an extension for another five years. But essentially what's being argued here by, and the group that took this case is FIE, the Friends of the Irish Environment, who I actually didn't hear of before today, but Tommy did, because he's more on top of things. Fair play, Tommy. <laughs> uh, um, is that essentially, they, they argued essentially that they would have had to do a whole new climate change analysis and all of the process would kind of have to start again. So like basically that it wasn't, they can't just extend that plan permission again, you know, yeah, ad infinitum yeah, yeah. kind of thing. That That's, because that, that's something that happens a lot with exploration licenses in relation to oil and gas is that a company will have a, a license for a certain amount of time. We saw this happening a lot in the north and uh, in in the Republic with fracking. If the company hasn't acted on the license on time, the license is just then extended by the government. Yeah. Um, they give them a lot of leeway, which seems to be what happens with the, the more money you have, the more leeway you get with fucking about stuff like that. But it, it's, it was quite surprising because there's a, so here in this story, there's the estuary is an EU designated special area of conservation and a special protection area for wild birds. And it's also a critical area for bottlenose dolphins. So much about this story reminds me of Rossport, you know? Yeah, yeah. But nothing like this ever happened. And all of those things were true in Rossport. There was a but there was dolphins in the area, yeah. there were special areas of conservation. It didn't make a blind bit of difference. There was no yeah. there was no Irish court judge who directed that the ECJ had to look at this or put things off in, in that kind of manner whatsoever. They were allowed to just it was just railroaded through the whole way. Yeah. So I was and I was looking and I actually looked what's the explanation for that? I looked and was this the the Habitats Directive, was it was it is it very new? But no, it existed since nineteen ninety two. But also relevant here, the the Justice Simons said that there basically there was a precedent set related to a nuclear power plant in Belgium. And I think that may be more recent. It doesn't actually put a date on this here. But the ECJ the ECJ case concerned the time limit on the operational phase of two nuclear power plants due to be shut down in Belgium. So um, So they were blocked because of the Habitat Directive as well, is that what you're saying? There was yeah, there was a similar it didn't doesn't explain it extremely well in this article here, but there was a there was a precedent set that has to be properly reviewed by the ECJ essentially. That's my understanding of it so far. Okay. It needs to basically be um officially assessed from scratch. Grant so whatever happened yeah. whatever was assessment done in, in you know, in two thousand and eight or before two thousand and eight is not valid. It has to be has to go through the whole process from the beginning essentially. So yeah, it's a really good good result for the court case here because it's like it's delayed things by a couple of years. So it's not a it's not an absolute victory in principle, but it's an important battle one because yeah. it'll it'll buy time and in the meantime But what, more than what, that, what, I would I would hope that when it gets to the ECJ they'll rule against it. I would not be so I said hope. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't be so hopeful about that. I mean, maybe they will, maybe they will. But um, in the meantime, anyway, the focus needs to go. And this is another thing that's going on at the minute in just getting that kind of activity banned altogether. 
while that project is stalled. Yeah. Let's get but it like, stopped. European courts in general, for this kind of thing, they're very strict. Mm. They're, they're much more strict than any sort of Irish official, like say courts or the Irish system. They're much more strict on the rules of the rules and the story. Like, you know, you the EU are like, uh, they, that they, can be good and bad depending yeah, on the circumstances. They, they, you know? they do apply them selectively though, I think. Because uh, they have their own political agenda as well. I mean, I don't, I don't, I'm not, I, I don't want to be negative, but like. But I mean, um, but as I said, I go, you know, going back to Rossport, the fact that there were special areas of conservation, mm. it wasn't referred to the Europe. You know, I'm sure there was, I'm sure, a, you know, a judge who was, who didn't have, as you said, political kind of leanings in a certain direction would have said, well, you can't be putting stuff there. That's a special area of conservation. You know, that kind of thing. I mean, a European court, mm. I think, is going to be much. Well, I don't know. I don't know. But in any case, it's very good news. So it's it's no longer you know a given. This is this is now kind of back to sort of like a legal drawing board in in a way. Yeah, yeah. You know, if this definitely if they're saying that like all of the official process has to be done from from start, that's a lot better than oh we've already gotten permission. We're just extending a thing, which is just yeah. and, and so that's what you're saying is that's going to apply now to future projects. They'll have to be. There, well, it seems to me like there's a, a precedent has already been set. I said, but this this case in Belgium doesn't go into a huge amount of detail about that now. So I'm not sure about the specifics, but the fact that it has to be reviewed and that they have to like, they can't just railroad it through. Basically, it's good news yeah. anyway. So a bit, bit. It's, it's a great opportunity now. In the meantime, like I said, to focus on banning them outright because there's actually there's a bill going through the doll at the moment. It's being stalled by Fine Gael. This is another story we uh, want to get onto. We need to talk about this now. This is really important. Um, now I, it's I, important to note that like I wouldn't be, I suppose I wouldn't have great faith. In electoral politics, in party, in representative democracy, party politics. I'm oh, not, right. a, not a supporter of any political party in particular. Um, I'll vote strategically for certain people depending on what I think they're going to do or what they claim they're going to do, but I would never yeah. put much hope in it, basically. But at the same time, uh, the government does wield power, so it, it has, you know, there's definitely, we need to pay attention to what's going on in the, at government level, basically, and influence it as best we can. And what's going on at the moment. Uh, Breed Smith from People Before Profit introduced a bill to ban fossil fuels. It's the Climate Emergency Measures Bill. Um, and that's currently being held up by Fine Gael. In it's, got, it's already gotten through the Shannon and it's already gotten through the Dáil. So that end of things is covered, which is it's, great news. Uh, it's being held up at committee level, which is unusual. You, normally committees are just there to discuss things and to make rec- recommendations. Kind of how to implement it when it's already been decided kind of thing as far yeah, as Yeah, it's like, they're, they're, yeah, exactly. And they're just stalling it. And it's all, it's it's like split down the middle and it's the half half of the committee who are members of Fine Gael or, or like and one or two independents maybe who are supporters of Fine Gael. Uh, yeah, blocking. quote unquote independents, yeah. yeah. Uh, interestingly, two of them are senators who were picked by the government, I think. They weren't, uh, yeah, not elected yeah. ones, basically. Yeah. Um, and that's that just seems really really irresponsible. And I was going to ask you, did they even state a reason why? What was what is the delay, or is there any no. stated reason, or is there some ridiculous reason? So what 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 seems kind of real dodgy about this is that like the bill's already been accepted and kind of it, it passed with like overwhelming support in the doll, including some of the people who are now blocking it. <sighs> um, so I mean, Breed Smith herself described it as a procedural trickery, is the word she used. No. Yeah. So they're kind of playing the games with it. Uh, but it is like it's it's fucking Fine Gael like they they talk the sustainable talk do you know what I mean yeah um, but then when you look at what they're actually doing it seems it just seems very irresponsible oh we can't you know? change things oh hold on a second you know like, they happily talk about carbon tax which I mean might be a, increasing the carbon tax might be a thing that has to happen at some point but they want to start with that rather than starting at the source like blocking 
oil and gas exploration. Yeah. Like, that's what that's that should be the that's first just an thing. Obvious thing to do. It's yeah. just clear as day for anyone who's being like sensible about this. Essentially. Yeah. And there's been no as far as I can I've been looking now, as far as I can tell, there's been no really clear reason given for why it's happening. Just, that's, that's basically it. There is there is yeah. no uh, you know <laughs> there is no clear reasoning. There is no good reason, yeah. So um Finnegale was gonna Finnegale and all that. I suppose, yeah, I, I shouldn't be surprised. I, I mean, I, I, my attitude towards these things, politically speaking, would be that this is too big an issue to be partisan about it. So, like, I'd be, I suppose, my, if I was to describe my politics, it'd be left, probably far to the left as well, to be honest. Well, like, yeah, realistically, we are, yeah. I kind of, I think, I, I'd have no issue with working with a right winger about on these kinds of things, do you know what I mean? Because it needs... Yeah. Although, doubtful that would actually happen in real life. Well, I mean, yeah, but just in theory, do you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because it just, we need everybody to be taking this seriously. So I'm not going to, like, write anybody off. But I'm just not seeing any... It's like how they are with housing, do you know what I mean? They're, they're, yeah, they're they not seeing anything yeah. from them. And there's reasons the why they want to keep things the way they are that they won't state... In that case, it's because they are the landlord party. Many of them are landlords themselves. Yeah. So, and of course, because it's... Because this and is, the landowner party. In the this big per, farmer party. Yeah. In this particular case, because it's about a type of big business. Doesn't matter what the big business is. Doesn't matter how much damage it does. They want to keep that going exactly the way it has been. Mm. But um, that can't happen. I believe, though, that the good news is that, even though that's really shitty news, the good news is that it can no longer... They can't vote it down or block it completely. Yeah. They can stall it, which they have done. But, you know, it's, you know, it, they can't stall it forever. It's now beyond the stage yeah. of being, it's been voted through in both houses. So, you know, it's going to happen. Yeah. Varadkar gave an awfully aggravating response to Breed Smith when he was questioned about it. Um, he, he answered it by not answering the question. It's a fairly common tactic when someone is losing the argument. They resort, they resort to... It's called the Theresa May tactic. To, uh, to, like, not slandering the other person, but basically making it personal rather than addressing the actual issue. Yeah, and that's avoid. essentially what he did. He basically told her to have, have manners. Yeah. When you're talking to me, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, fuck that. <laughs> yeah, fuck <laughs> It's him, too like. important. Like, this is like, we can't be dicking around with false chivalry here. Like, we need to, like, just get it done, do you know? And I doubt she even swore or something, because if, if she did, you can guarantee that would be top headline news. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? So it's probably just for, like, speaking a little too loudly or something, or nothing, actually. It was probably just nothing. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Like, uh, he just he make, made some half hours complaint about the far left and moved on. Yeah, um, of course. It's just the arrogance of it that really bothers me. That's like that's not something you to admire in a leader. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I have no issue following someone's leadership if it if it's good leadership, but if it's just this all swagger and no action, then yeah, I don't see any value in that. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, at all. Look, he's Leo Varadkar is an elite. He always has been. He doesn't know what it's like to struggle. He just you know forget about the likes of him. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Seriously, like seriously, and his party. But as bad as that is, it's also overall good, in my opinion. So I think overall, we some some decent news on this episode yeah, yeah. overall, you know. And uh, yeah, I guess we should, we've just been, been rambling for a while now. We um, have, but I guess. So yeah, this episode is going to be about food sovereignty. So I suppose we should describe what, what does that, that mean? means exactly. Well, the, 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 the concept of sovereignty gets bandied about around a lot. Usually by Brexiteers. Usually by Brexiteers or like IREG. There's a party in Ireland now called IREGSIT. Yeah, forget about them. Listen, like fucking... Like, do you think anybody's going to vote to leave the European Union in, in this country? No, but I just, I just like that. You could have picked a better name. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like, it, it, it makes so that they're going to be so imp- impotent. Like just, but, just um, I wouldn't even think of them. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, honestly, but people from from that from that party and like kind of on the, the fringes of the far party. right, fringes of the far right in Ireland, 
doing a little air quotes We'll talk about sovereignty a lot. Um, always in a very vague way. They're kind of harking back. See, it goes along with the whole Brexit thing there. They're harking back to a time that was, the world was, not not that it wasn't globalised. It wasn't globalised the way it has been in the last number of decades, though. Mm. So um, it's a less meaningful phrase, even though the concept exists in international law. Obviously, like the Republic of Ireland is a sovereign nation, etc. But like in practical terms, that's way less meaningful than it used to be a number of years ago. Yeah, yeah. So that's why, the, you know, I don't want to go down too much of a Brexit rabbit hole here because that's something that can happen very easily. But like they want to they want to execute something that isn't possible in the modern day and age. They want to have like everything is just way. I think it was described before as you have a cake that's been baked together and then you decide after the fact that you want to remove the original ingredients from that cake. Yeah, it yeah, just yeah. doesn't make any sense you know it just, yeah. it's just not logical whatever you think whatever your politics are yeah. from a, even from a technical point of view it's just nonsense yeah, it's, a, it's a funny conversation because um, for, for definitely like people people kind of come to this conclusion that we need to separate because there is a loss of kind of local control of your your immediate area do you know what I mean yeah. there's, there's a, a centralisation of power and that that needs to be kind of resisted. Because, because the UK can't. doesn't have that thing of centralisation of power, right? It's, well, every nation state does. That's not the point. But uh, more centralisation of power is a bad thing. So you want to avoid that. But like, it's it's also really important that we are conscious of ourselves as a global species and that we're connected on a global level so that we can start. Because these are the problems we're facing now are huge problems. Yeah. Uh, so we need to think about them as a species, I suppose. But anyway, we're getting kind of sidetracked to the point where we're talking about food sovereignty. Um, so unlike the kind of vague sovereignty like Brexit where you oh, you might have a different colour passport and that's something that makes you sovereign food sovereignty means can we actually look after our needs can we produce using food our, to yeah. feed ourselves essentially yeah. and depend less on trade from well not that we depend less on trade necessarily but not have no, to no, import what is it we, does, you have a statistic here that was frightening that we only yeah. of all the vegetables we consume in Ireland we only produce 1% of them here on Ireland yeah so that's essentially the opposite of food sovereignty is what we're saying. Yeah, we're t- we're we t- t- what the kind of farming that the state encourages and facilitates through uh, tax cuts and subsidies and stuff like that is uh, animal farming, large scale industrial animal farming, producing beef and dairy for the international market, yeah. and and food monocultures. Essentially. Monoculture, yeah. Um, so we're actually we're in a very weak position because uh, if if there was any kind of emergency scenario. As shipping lanes being uh, disturbed by storms, for example, or snow, heavy snow, we don't have, or drought, for example. There was drought last year, loads of crops failed, and because there's yeah. so little, there was fuck all veg got produced here, there was a shortage of broccoli for a while, and that's like, yeah. wasn't disastrous in and of itself, but this is the beginning of... It's disastrous enough, like... yeah. Look at all the farmers who suffered really badly financially on the, on yeah, the back yeah. of that, like, I yeah, mean, yeah. who are already very precarious, by the way. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's dangerous and it's something that we need to counteract and that's what we're going to be talking about now is how do we become food sovereign? How do yeah. we become like... F- One other important point, I know you're saying we the actual quantity of vegetables that we produce is not nearly enough mm. but even apart from that, even if we did, uh, I was reading something quite recently that the number of, just in the world in general, the number of different species of food, different, in other words, different types of food mm. that are being produced is far less and so even if we were producing loads of one or two or three crops when something like a some kind of bad climactic event happens mm. and it wipes out all of one crop but that one crop is maybe 40% of your crops or something yeah, so yeah. even if you're producing loads you're still extremely vulnerable where if you had yeah. in the past like if you go back a number of years like a number of decades or 100 years or something like that there was something like 6,000 or something different species of food that were 
that were um, eaten by people overall. Mm. So different, so lots of diversity. So if one or two of those 6,000 species, you're, you're grand. But if you only have six and one or two are destroyed, you're really screwed then. You yeah. know what I mean? So we actually need, it's like when we talk about like diversity and stuff, it's a real practical thing. It's not airy fairy stuff. It's a mm. real, in this moment, like we need this or we're not going to have, we're going to starve potentially in the future. Yeah. It's yeah. not a joke like. Yeah, yeah. And we should know that better than better than anywhere in this country because that's what happened in the yeah. the famine of the the eighteen forties. Uh, people argued that it was a genocide because of the fact that there was plenty of food being grown here, but all of it except for the potatoes, the cheaper crops, were being exported for a market in England. Yeah, um, and it was pe- and that's kind of people basically ate potatoes and little else. Yeah, so when the one crop they had failed, millions of people starved and died and emigrated. Yeah. Um, half the population we, there was 8 million people living on this island in the 1800s yeah. until that happened and it served their their interest because it kept us even weaker again to keep us like in line afterwards with yeah. speak English or die that kind of thing and I'm not trying to exaggerate but that's not that's not a million miles away from the situation we're in now wherein there's a small a shrinking number of big farmers who are being aided by the government to export their product like what, what would happen if we entered a, a kind of food emergency do you think they'd share share their 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 products with us no they keep selling to the international market because they're business people at the end of the day nothing wrong with being a business person but they're it's the model of business it's the model of business exactly and it's the model of food production which is based on making profit because it's industrial it's based on making as much profit as possible and that's the ultimate goal and that's yeah. something that needs to change absolutely it's not it's, that's what i was saying to you earlier even though if food is being produced the actual point of it is not food production the point is turning a profit mm. And when that's the, you know, the motive needs to be changed away from turning a profit yeah. to actually genuinely food production for for the end. The end goal is producing different types of food, healthy food and nutrition for the people, essentially. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like it's a completely different thing from from generate profit. Yeah. So if you look at what what's going on here now, because everything is profit driven, market driven, driven by marketing. Yeah. Um, so we've got less farmers in the country producing a, um, way less variety way of less. crops way less. mainly producing cows we import, we import most of our fruit, fruit and veg from fucking miles away ages away halfway around the world yeah and, and a food that we do produce most of is export too yeah do you know and so there's all these like bullshit marketing trends superfoods foods that are supposed to be super good for you they happen to be ones that are from really far away and yeah. that are really quote-unquote exotic you know like the fucking what do you call them avocados and Avoc- mangoes are no better for you than apples like do you know what I mean yeah yeah, yeah avocados yeah. are no better for you than carrots yeah do you know what I mean they're, they're, they're just our nettle's not superfoods you know what I mean N- a nettle is a superfood that's that something that Lucy even though it's not in this half but Lucy mentioned in her interview about like you know that's just a typical example of a really nutritious really healthy food that is everywhere in Ireland the ditch is everywhere yeah Um. so we do not need to be important as delicious as they are we do not need to be important uh, those wonderful green testicles from halfway around the world. Absolutely, we um, don't. So, uh, av- yeah, avocados. The I mean, even my my partner who's from you know Spain, so like they're they're obsessed with food in Spain, you know. Mm. But um, like you know, she was talking to me. There was a time when she was growing up. She remembers foods were in season, and you got the foods when they were in season, and that was that, which yeah. is not the case anymore, because we need to have bananas all year round, right? Yeah, yeah. Like. Why can't we just eat something that's in season when bananas are out of season? It's right. not... Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, that, that's the way things used to be here as well. And that's the way... Uh, we're going to get on to talking to Fergal Anderson in a minute, play that interview. That's the way his farm works. They have a farm down in Galway. Uh, what's it called? Let me just check. Um, where the fuck's my notes gone? 
Uh, it's called well the Mother of Jesus. Okay, it's called the Leaf and Root Farm uh, in Galway. It's where Fergal Anderson uh, does does his business, and uh, they uh, only produce seasonally. So they 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 yeah. So they only produce seasonal. All the fruit and vegetables. Are, it, it, they only produce what can grow in Ireland in that season. Yeah. Um, it's not unreasonable way of doing things. No. And the way they work is they they have what's called a community supported agriculture scheme, a CSA scheme. And their schemes they're cro- cropping up all over the country now. It's like is you, that government related? Or? No, no, no. It's you, you, you as the buyer of the vegetables has a direct relationship with the farmer. So basically, you right. give you kind of subscribe. Of, you give us yeah, you give a certain amount of money per month, and then you get a box of vegetables off them every week of stuff that's or like once every couple of weeks or whatever of stuff that's in season. Yeah. And uh, it's 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 a fairly affordable way of getting locally produced. Health, like good nutritious vegetables and a variety of stuff because that's another w- weird thing about the way supermarkets work they they throw out all the vegetables that don't match a certain shape because people don't want to buy weird this is, looking this vegetables this is a crazy thing yeah. Yeah, yeah ugly fruit essentially yeah yeah you know which leaves a huge food waste and it leads to like a, a deficit in the amount of nutrition but, you're getting to well. be honest like I hear they've been talked a lot and, and that that's a fair enough point but like I actually think that like that's also kind of missing the point as well that like because you have loads of one Fruit and veg. I mean, also like the ones are just gonna. There's just too much of maybe the same ones that are just simply gonna go off before they're ready to be eaten as well. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? So there's, there's also that angle. You know, it's not just about being ugly and people rejecting it. It's also just it's too much of the same stuff. You know, it's yeah, not just yeah. enough diversity in general. You know. Um. So yeah, there's not enough diversity, and we're like very concentrated land use. So before we get on to talking to Fergal Anderson, I'd like to t- talk a little bit about how we got into this scenario. Um, I went down a bit of a rabbit hole when I was looking into this. Um, so what? how did we get into this situation? To answer a question, you have to go really far back to the first people who settled Ireland. Even further than that, where did they come from? So they came from uh, northwest Africa via, via Iberia. They came from Spain. The earliest, like, using, like, a genetic dating, the earliest people we can find came from Spain. The Celts came across northern Spain, essentially, yeah. Uh, I don't know if they were Celts necessarily. There's debate. There's, there's debate about that. That's not something that's agreed upon. Because um, the Celts would have come from Central Europe, and then there's the notion that there might be Celt Iberians that came from Spain, but they're not sure if that's really, really the crack. But also, people came from Central Europe as well, and like came via Scotland. The north of the island would have been settled via land bridge from the UK as well. But uh, ultimately, people came from the Near East which is where farming was first developed in an area called the Fertile Crescent, an area which is now desert, by the way. and that's the scary thing when you start looking at the history of farming places where early farming was practiced is now desert and the the majority of the world is is, is desert or becoming desert desertification is creeping uh, outward and outward the whole time uh, because just fundamentally the way we've done agriculture for thousands of years now has been it's non-regenerative yeah exactly you were describing earlier how for example nutrients would be the way things are done now nutrients will be taken directly from somewhere and imported into the ground and then they're used up and then they're gone yeah because you're saying like there are examples of uh, like if you were doing that properly you put organisms into the ground which in 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 a circular fashion regenerate the nutrients yeah so it's a genuine ecology do you know what i mean yeah that Um, kind of thing but we've been doing this for thousands of years now ireland has been settled by humans for about twelve and a half thousand years ten thousand to twelve and a half thousand years um, I think sheep and cattle and grains were introduced from Europe around six and a half thousand years ago. It's the earliest signs of sheep. Um, they reckon that's when the first farmers made landfall and started blending in with the people who already lived here. There would have been hunter gatherers or maybe pastoralists, so keeping wandering herds. 
Um, so they, those those are people who would have originated ultimately in the Near East. In the Near East, uh, there's also evidence in the Cage of Fields. It's a really cool site in Mayo. That's around five and a half thousand years ago. Um, it's the earliest sign of fields. So there's like really old stone walls, an early field system, and there's evidence that they were using cattle to pull ploughs there. Um, so okay. for for a couple of thousand years, pastoralism would have done, would have dominated. So like you're not having the herd in the one area; the herd is wandering. Yeah, of course. Um, uh, also, Ireland at this time would have been a centre of gold mining, and we're starting to move into the copper and bronze ages, uh, Brunabonia and different uh, spiritual sites, dolmens, portal tombs would have all been built around this period. And then when you get into the copper and bronze age, there's still there's a this we've sort of there's a tribal system in Ireland at this stage. The Brehan laws, there's evidence that cattle was a really important uh, currency at that time. It was kind of and if you think about our most famous myth, the Tawn. That's about the king and queen are lying in bed trying to one-up each other on how rich they are. And it comes down to one of them has a bigger herd of cows than the other. So queen, uh, what's her name? Yeah. Queen Maeve then hears about this deadly bull up in Ulster and goes, right, I'm going to go get this bull and then I'll have the more prosperous, uh, prosperous, or I'll have the more kind of impressive wealth. So it's all about a cattle raid, basically. You know what I mean? So yeah. that's like that's, some, that's how important cattle was as an indicator of wealth. Um, it certainly makes sense from an agricultural point of view. Yeah, and then so that that's that's when we, like because Ireland and the uh, the island that encompasses England and Wales and Scotland, um, Britain, um, <laughs> that island. Th- yeah, those guys over there. Uh, both of these islands would have been covered in forests for thousands and thousands of years, and it's only around five thousand yeah. years ago with the um, or two to five thousand years ago that kind of time period with the arrival of the Beaker people, who started making different metal alloys and. Um, so mining was contributing to this as well, but they basically started the process of deforestation to facilitate mining and cattle herding. Yeah. Um, and then kind of once that the de- great deforestation was complete, we've got the proliferation of human tribes. Population has grown. That's, this is another thing about agriculture is it facilitates a booming population. When yeah. you have consistent access to calories, you produce more of your species. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of the runaway sort of population burst that humanity is like i think something yeah. like 80 to 90 percent of land animals on earth are either humans or domesticated animals under human control yeah of course yeah um so like just by weight we're, yeah. so we're, we're we're like we're kind of like we <laughs> wiping out every other species and only having room for ourselves their habitats, yeah. um which is i mean that sounds like that's that's seen as a success do you know what i mean yeah. we've dominated but um, we're, it's it's going to be what throws us off in the end I think yeah it could be what kills us in the end um, so then in Ireland here so we had the tribal system for years war and chieftains then of course we had our neighbours the Brits who uh, for about 800 years would have varying degrees of control over the island um, so the system of farming throughout that would have been a feudal one so you've got landless workers working on land for the the wealthy the landlords, the wealthy landlords and lords, and that system went largely unchanged up until eighteenth, nineteenth, twentieth century. It started changing, and then of course Ireland gained its independence from the United Kingdom. And most of Ireland, anyway. Most of Ireland, yeah, uh, except for the, the six counties up in the north of the island, um, who are still under foreign control. Um, and the Republic then in the 20th century as well would have joined the EU uh, and one of the first policies of the EU was cap common agricultural policy 
And that's significant because a lot of farmers get funding through CAP uh, and through the government. And the, the kind of the kind of farming that's encouraged is still is is so we've gone from a situation where loads of different people were working the land, not their land; they were working other people's it's land. It's been whittled down to very few people. Yeah, because it's the, all big farmers, and it's yeah, yeah. Because there would there would have been commonage before as well, but that gradually got just sucked in, accumulated by the wealthy classes. Yeah. Uh, land that would have been owned in common by the people here and in England, um, eventually got just sucked into the wealthy classes, and that 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 basically the the whole whole way along there's just been an increase of uh, wealth centralization of wealth and of power and it hasn't stopped it's still ongoing now it's still ongoing yeah so now we're in a situation where there's yeah just a small number of big farmers and increase a shrinking number of big farmers now it's still, we're still talking about a, a decent number of people but like not nearly the number working in the land that there would have been before and as we said at the start we've gotten ourselves into a very weak position now where we're reliant on import to feed ourselves and we've got our feed being food being produced by a small number of people who are motivated primarily by profit yeah so that's that's just dangerous we need to do something about that so what are the alternatives to this there's a load of them and we'll be talking about them a bit more in part two but um we're going to talk to fergal anderson now in a minute about what he gets up to um so one what before we get on to that though one thing that i just i'd like to talk about briefly is and we've brought this up a few times before is di- different ways different alternatives to agriculture right We'll get on to more in part two, but one of them is permaculture yeah, or polyculture. Polyculture basically means instead of having a monocrop, you've got a, a, a monocrop culture, monoculture. You've got a polyculture, which is instead of a field full of carrots or a field full of cabbage, you've got a field that has a rake of different vegetables or plants growing in it. It's a locally diverse ecology, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, you, know? you can use principles like companion planting, which is there's this you can learn which plants grow well together. So they and which animals and which creatures go well with certain yeah, yeah. like you know um, natural instead of using you know pesticides and insecticides, you can have like say frogs that eat what might be pests here. I'm just giving a very like basic example, but that's the general principle of it. You know, yeah, yeah. And uh, so then permaculture. It's not good for generating profit, by the way. I just want to point that out. But that's exactly why it's a good thing. It's a good thing for producing lots of different types of food and lots of food to eat yeah. but it's not something where you can produce lots of one thing and turn a huge profit that's not the type yeah, that's, of that's, system that's, that's, that's important to point out because that's the reason industrial agriculture works is because if you sell large amounts of one thing then you'll, it's easier to monopolise and make profit doing that it's not that you can't generate wealth you just won't necessarily generate loads of profit for yeah. your potential shareholders you can still but, generate a livelihood for yourself yeah. but gener- this is really important to point out that generating a livelihood and say paying yourself a wage is not the same thing as generating a profit yeah. you generate a profit because you want to get filthy flipping rich yeah. which is a different thing than providing a living for yourself um but you can you can you can produce large large amounts of food yes so you can you can feed large amounts of people it's just the way the market is set up now is distribution of a very small variety of large quantities of a small variety of food getting distributed yeah. from central locations all over the world whereas for these kinds of systems to have to work there needs to be more and more people working in the land and people eating from what from their own uh it's not necessarily labor intensive by the way no no that's the whole kind of the whole point is that it's the way agriculture works now it's industrial so it's high input you have to keep inputting nutrients uh you just keep pouring money into it and your own work keeping the you're artificially as you said you're you're putting the nutrients directly into the soil yourself whereas in a in a permaculture system that happens basically by itself yeah that's kind of the whole point and even if it's like so permaculture is kind of a whole set a whole philosophy that tries to encompass these values and and then apply them to the, 
the entirety of your life so how do you integrate yourself into your become like replicate nature basically become part of nature but there's other ways of doing that as well but the what's the point of all of them is to create a self-sustaining system so yeah. one that replicates and sustains and maintains itself and we'll talk a bit sustainability more sustainability is a word that can be bandied about in in bad ways i think recently but it is genuinely sustainable in the yeah. literal sense of the word yeah um and i think yeah that's important to, to talk about as well cause sustainable does get thrown around a lot and it gets thrown around a lot by people who like okay we're making a claim to know what sustainable means by huh. saying oh this is sustainable but has that not has what what that mm, what has humanity done over the last few thousand years that's been sustainable think about the way we got our food i mean for thousands upon thousands of years before agriculture tens of thousands of years people were hunter gatherers and i'd be tempted to say was that sustainable but no because people hunted to extinction the woolly mammoth various other large land animals the the, the giant deer that yeah. used to be native to ireland and scotland bears we used to bears in ireland they were hunted to extinction so even that wasn't sustainable do you know what i mean so like we're still what sustainable is is something that we're still trying to figure out i think we don't really know yeah. well i think we know what it is in principle but how to actually get there we still haven't sussed that out but these are these are some of the ways that i think will it's pointing towards greater sustainability it's like kind of getting we're just getting smarter basically yeah the way we've been doing things has been a bit blunt and stupid and we need to move beyond it essentially and that's not to say anyone who's doing it is stupid but you're like yeah i mean we're locked into systems since the day yeah. we we're born but we, we yeah. the, the cycle does need to be broken at some stage yeah um so i suppose we get on to talking to fergal now um just as a brief introduction of i phrased that funny I, we already recorded this interview so we're going to play the fergal and <laughs> we're Anderson trying to make interview. it sound like this is all chronological but yeah. it's not and well planned and stuff um so yeah fergal uh They've he set up the as I said the leaf and root farm down in County Galway. They run a CSA scheme, community supported agriculture. Um, so they only started about seven years ago. He's a first generation farmer. They've got five acres of land. Uh, they've planted fruit orchards in some places. They've got vegetables and herbs, polytunnels. A uh, polytunnel is basically like a greenhouse kind of. Uh, they kind use of small greenhouses, no? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they they use green manure in rotation seaweed and other fertility builders to, to, to feed the soil. They also keep some bees, a few beehives just for their own use. Deadly. Uh, supply honey for themselves. Um, and the reason we wanted to talk to Fergal is because he's a member of a group called Talov Bio, who are linking in with La Via Campesina, an international farm labourers movement. And All the wanna, languages. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was started in, I don't know exactly where, sorry, but it was started somewhere in South America. Yeah. Um, it was a peasant farmers movement um, to kind of give a voice to small farmers, small scale farmers, uh, what you call them, um, people who feed themselves and make a little bit extra off the land, kind of really small scale stuff to give to give to give those kinds of farmers a voice. Yeah, campesinos would be kind of like farm labourers, you know. Yeah, yeah basically farm labourers, landless farm workers are people who yeah. have a small bit of land yeah. to give them kind of the same power that big farmers have because big farmers like any big company like big oil like big tech have a very strong lobby so of those of us who don't have a strong lobby we group together to give ourselves equal weight a political voice in other words um so we talked to him a bit about that and he also was part of drafting the food sovereignty ireland proclamation food sovereignty ireland are a group who are looking to um further the idea i suppose of food sovereignty to develop develop it here in ireland and to to, to basically find a way to make ireland sovereign nation in terms of its food production. Uh, so here's Phil Glantry.
thanks for uh, thanks for for taking the time to, to talk to us. Um, I have a few questions for you here, but I guess to start off, um, we've been talking a bit about food sovereignty already and what that actually means as a concept. But uh, as a way of introducing yourself, could you maybe tell us a bit about your background, uh, what food sovereignty means to you, and I suppose how you got introduced to the topic. Sure. Yeah. I mean, my uh, we have a small farm in in East Galway, um, and I suppose we're I'd be a first generation farmer. Uh, I started this farm six years six years ago, um, very much with the idea that we wanted to kind of uh, feed people, feed the community, and uh, and try and make a sustainable livelihood for ourselves. Um, I suppose that uh, for me, food sovereignty uh, kind of spurred me on to make the decision to move back onto to farming. Um, because I came across an organization called La Via Campesina, which means the way of the peasant, or movement of peasant farmers who kind of came up with that term, mm. uh, food, food sovereignty. And, and just in meeting them and talking to them and, and, and seeing what the kind of work that they were doing and, and realizing that there were people uh, trying to sort of make a living from the land across the world and that there was a kind of uh, struggle to, to kind of maintain that as a possibility in your life that you, could, that you can make a living from the land and, and feed the land in a, in a, in a, in a good way. Um, for me, give me the interest, I suppose. And like, I mean, there's, a, there's always been a political element to what we're doing here, um, in the sense that the motivation for it has been kind of political, and that that's kind of where the food sovereignty bit comes in. Because I, I sort of see it as this framework for how we think about how we think about organizing food and agricultural systems in society. You know, and, and that means like a democratization, uh, a way of thinking about who's in control, a way of thinking how decisions are made and who should make the decisions and and what we really want out of our food systems, like, which is something I think that um, this conversation has not really been had, or if it's been had, it's been had by, by a small minority. And like, a, I mean, I suppose on one hand, I wanted to get involved in the farming because I wanted to actively be doing something on the ground. But on the other hand, I think seeing it in the sense of this food sovereignty is part of the process. It's part of the idea that we're trying to uh, engage directly with something, you know, that is that is that is that is, uh, that is meaningful, meaningful in our own lives, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, could you could you tell me? Uh, I know the two groups you're a member of, uh, Talav Bio and Food Sovereignty Ireland. Could you tell us a bit yeah, about them and what uh, sure. what you're what you're up to at the moment? Yeah, sure. I mean, Food Sovereignty Ireland kind of started off as a, a kind of loose alliance between different organisations that were interested in working on food sovereignty, and and I think I mean I, I was sort of volunteering with that because I, I I'd worked a bit um, in in Brussels on on the on the concept of food sovereignty, and when I was involved in organizing the first European Food Sovereignty Forum, which was in Austria in 2011. So I came back to Ireland that year, actually, just after the forum, and I was really buzzed up about the whole uh, food sovereignty thing. So I began to approach organizations and see, look, is there interest in doing stuff around this? And beginning to diffuse the concept a little bit in Ireland, because it was something I think people weren't familiar with. Now, we were kind of uh, lucky in a strange way, because... uh, with the crisis, you know, people began to talk about economic sovereignty, and I think, you know, when we began to have that discussion about what is economic sovereignty, what's our, you know, do we know, do we still have control of our own, you know, economic systems and political systems, or are we, you know, are they being controlled by outside forces, etc.? That helped to kind of, I suppose, for people to understand the concept of food sovereignty because it ties in quite well. And you say, okay, do we still have, do we have do we have any kind of a democratic control over over how land is used and where food is coming from and how and what are the forces behind it? So like. It, it wasn't a bad time to be to be starting that discussion. Mm-hmm. And I think Food Sovereignty Ireland. I mean, it kind of uh, in twenty sixteen we had a, a proclamation, a food sovereignty proclamation, which is still online and foodsovereigntyireland.org. And that was kind of like a. It was probably the the the, 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 the achievement that those organisations came together, and there was quite a few groups involved in that. 
like from uh, I would say social justice organizations, development organizations, environmental groups. Um, but there's and, and and the declaration is great, and it's a real I think uh, you know there's a lot of work went into it, and it's a kind of real. It's a great basis for looking forward uh, to well, how we can think about land use in Ireland. But there's a there's a missing element, which I think was the, the farmers' representation, and, and there's a problem in Ireland with farmers' representation because there's we have an we have an agricultural system which is very much based on a kind of export uh, model, a volume model yeah. of uh, exporting as much as we can. And I, there, there was no, even though there's lots of other great things going on, and I think there's a lot of other great people doing other things and trying to work outside that system. There's no representation there, and that's what we're trying to trying to resolve with with Tal of Bio is to say, look, um, we need we need organisations, strong organisations in Ireland that have uh, that represent farmers, but have uh, you know also represent the kind of environmental um, position that a lot of farmers have, which is a, I think a very positive one and a very creative one because a lot of farmers doing a lot of very good work. Yeah, yeah. And they try and break down those kind of, you know, there's, there's, we create these kind of divides between us, urban rural, and environmentalists hate farmers, and, you know, and everyone thinks, you know, so there's all these conflicts that, you know, that, that I think exist. And I don't, I don't know how true some of them are, because actually I think uh, for a lot of uh, farmers on the ground in Ireland, they actually want to see a kind of thriving community, they want to see the land yeah, treated yeah. in a good way. And they've kind of, you know, and they've kind of been railroaded in the, in the last uh Forty years into, into into production systems, which you know, um, I know we're now realizing like are are, are are doing a huge amount of damage. So like, you know, it's something we all have to resolve together. You know, and I think we should avoid conflict in this, but we have to kind of get the conversation started yeah. and, and make food and agriculture onto, put onto the political agenda. Let's say, and I think if it's on the political agenda, the important thing is that there's a vo- that the voice of the of the farmers who are kind of um, who would have a critical view of the existence system. Isn't co-opted or isn't taken. So that's kind of the idea of Talib Bureau is that we have a we have a voice of our own. And I think that's really important in the debates that we're going to be having in the next yeah, yeah. five to ten years in Ireland as we try and straighten out. You know. Yeah, totally. The, um, I think a, a bit of conflict yeah. is going to be inevitable with conversations like this. With diff- when you're when you're trying to change things sure, yeah. across the board, you start you've started talking about a few things there that I, I wanted to ask you about anyway. Um, yeah. Talking about representation and uh, kind of sure. what the what the attitudes of the majority of farmers on the ground are so i guess to try and ask those two questions at once um what like what i suppose when i think about farmers representation i think about the ifa who are an organization we would certainly yeah, be, be sure. very critical of so whose interests do you think sure. the ifa work on behalf of well i think the, uh, the, the ifa hierarchy let's say the main the main kind of uh the the the, the top the top heads of the ifa would be very much in I would say I don't. I don't like using words like cahoots because it's a bit kind of <laughs> vague. But I have the impression that they're kind of in cahoots with the the big the big exporters, the factories, uh, the big. You know, I mean, Ireland's very concentrated. Like so, like the the, the meat sector. I think there's three or four um, processing companies in, in the in the whole country. Uh, that's pretty much tied up. Uh, and in the dairy sector, it's quite it's quite tied as well to the big corporations like Lambia, etc. Yeah. So, like those organisations wield a huge amount of power, and it's normal that, the, that they're going to have the interests of the biggest, most productive uh, farmers that have most land. Um, you know, because they're the ones that, that are probably producing. They're their, their main customers. They're the ones that are making most money. So, like that is a kind of that, that's a huge issue in Ireland, and I think it's almost impossible to get a conversation started actually uh, in Ireland about food and agriculture because of the control that organisations like the IFA. Uh, exercise 
in in that kind of, in in government in in the Department of Agriculture. So like, I mean, yeah. I, I don't want to start a huge fight with the Department of Agriculture or a huge fight with the IFA because I think there's a there's an issue with the I mean at the local level. I know a lot of people who are involved in the IFA locally and they're good people and they're they 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 see the problems with the organisation. But I think just um, it's just it's maybe it's it. The IFA put a lot of its eggs in one basket, in that kind of productive basket, a uh, long, a long time ago. And it's very hard for it to change direction. It's like a big boat that's kind of uh, going one way, and the captain's decided that's the way it's going. And like everybody, all the sailors <laughs> want to have a mutiny, but they're locked out of the room at the top. So like, right, you know, okay. uh, it's kind of it's it's and it's heading for the icebergs. And like, I, I think that's the issue in Ireland. There was, and you, you see, you've seen a bit of a fragmentation there with the organisations like the Irish Nature and Hill Farmers who are. You know, more marginal farmers and on on, on on tougher land a lot of the time who have broken out of the IFA and have said that they they they've organized, they've set up their own organization and have had great success with it. So I think that's that's just going to be something that's going to happen. And you know, we're going to see in the coming years, uh, you know, the the, the the divide maybe become clearer between like the the people who are into this productivist model of like right. producing as much as we can. And these and, and and the kind of uh, organisations that are looking to kind of try and find a more sustainable long-term land use system in Ireland. Uh, right, and that's yeah. uh, that, you know, that's the conversation we have to get involved in, I suppose. Uh, you know, I mean, um, yeah, yeah. You, you, you brought up the, the Department of Agriculture there and what the state are, uh, what model of farming the state uh, kind of showed their lot in with. Uh, we saw a lot of that last year in mm-hmm. increased uh, live cattle exports, reducing the the tax on uh, cattle export and stuff like that. I mean, you know, it's it's part of their mm-hmm. long-term food plan to increase dairy production, to increase meat production at precisely the time that we seemingly should be decreasing yeah. this stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's as you're saying, as you're saying, there it sounds like there is there is movement against that beginning. I I was wondering, like, what in your experience, what um, in terms of the farming population, how many people kind of realise the severity of the situation we're in in terms of the climate crisis, and are people kind of willing to to make the necessary changes or do they do they see the need for the necessary changes uh, i think i think people realize that i mean that which way the wind is blowing now and i mean there's this there's, there's there's multiple crises looming if you're a farmer uh, if you're a beef farmer in particular looking at the brexit situation and you know the climate situation i, I think you know the writing is on the wall for for that farming system for the vast majority of the population but like, like i said it's very difficult for for farms to change their production systems overnight, you know. Yeah, yeah, of course. Social, it takes social change doesn't happen. In, you can't make these things happen instantaneously. You can put all the um, all the measures in place and 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 start a transition. And and in ten years, fifteen years, have a completely different landscape in terms of what's uh, what kind of production we have. And that's why it's very unfortunate that the uh, the Irish government has continued with this kind of very much uh, production-based model. Like you, you mentioned it there, there, there was the Harvest 2020. I think they've stretched it out to the, uh, Foodwise 2025. I can't remember the name of the latest incarnation of the same thing, really, which is mm. just looking at how we can in- increase volume. And like, I mean, I, I think, like I said before, there's a lot of farmers on the ground who realize that that's, uh, it's crazy. They've been doing that for 20 or 30 years, seeing no change in their income. Uh, um, you know what I mean? Even seeing their incomes fall. So, like, uh, it really depends on the type of farming structure that you have or the type of farm you have. And some farms will be um, ready for to, for a change. Other farms might be hugely in debt, uh, locked into that system for the next, you know, 10 years. It's not easy if, you, if you've if you got 150,000 euros worth of debt to uh, to turn your farm around and maybe reduce your production because you've got, you know, contracts and banks to pay. Mm-hmm. And, uh, 
<laughs> so like, I mean, those are those are just some of the issues. I mean, it, you have to. It, it's a it's a it's a social issue as well as a, a political issue. You know, I mean, yeah. the, the, at the end of the day, there's families there and farms and a lot of history and and like you know, there'd be certain farmers who'd have the capacity or innov- to innovate, other others that wouldn't. Um, so like, it's, certainly, you could certainly have uh, you know. Stimulus in the right direction, and at the moment there's absolutely nothing out there. Like, and I think there's things like the, the organic sector, which would already be a great step if uh, if farms farmers could convert to organic and stop using chemical uh, fertilizers, stop using pesticides, etc., on their farm. But the the budget that's available for that is microscopic at the moment in Ireland. And okay. like, I mean, even in the, the latest round of the organic scheme, which opened in from uh, November to December, there for one month, a very short uh, window, which is. Um, there were, there were 280 applicants and they say there's going to be like 30 people accepted into the scheme. So you have farmers out there who want to do something different and there's, there's no, there's no access for them. So like, I mean, if you want to join the organic scheme in Ireland, you have to wait for them to say when the, when the scheme opens, it's not open all the time. You know, you can't just say, Oh, I want to join into the, you know, so like it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, the government's not doing much, I would say at the moment, and right. it's going to, but it's going to have to shift. You yeah. Know? yeah uh, um, that, that, so like uh, how, how we get to get it to shift is, is another question, you know. So that's why we're trying to get organised, all of you, and trying to get. I think getting citizens involved in the debate around food and agriculture, get them to understand the issues better. Those are huge, huge. Uh, yeah, that kind of uh, that kind of brings me on to the, that brings me on to another question. There, you, you already mentioned the kind of yeah. urban rural divide, and something we try to do with this podcast a lot is is kind of break through those those splits, yeah. those supposed splits. You know, like there's like another one would be. Uh, there tends to be a split between environmental activists and social activists. Yeah, people who campaign around social yeah. issues like housing and stuff yeah. like that. Um, so just just speaking about the urban and rural kind of split, and there is, there is a bit of distance between lifestyles in the city and in the countryside here in this country. Um, so my question, I suppose, yeah. would be considering uh, you've already listed a lot of the obstacles to kind of establishing food sovereignty in Ireland as like or establishing a new food system in Ireland. Um, so I suppose my question is, what can those of us who live in the cities do to support um, to support the the establishment of of that kind of system or the changing of our current system? Yeah, I mean, like there's always going to be different layers of stuff that has to happen. I mean, I think that you know we've got we've got the stimulus that can come from the state, which is one side of the things. But I think that you know we can always be waiting for that. I think the the interesting things also happen when we start to innovate, like as activists and uh, you know. Uh, in our communities and things, and I think there's there's huge potential for uh, urban groups to link up with farmers in the hinterlands of cities, towns around the country, and begin to say, okay, look for the young uh, farmer who's looking to do something different, and talk to them and say, okay, let's, I, I want, I'm looking to get vegetables, I'm looking to get sort of uh, food from a different source. That's always a good thing because I think it starts a whole conversation. It brings uh, urban people out into the the, the the areas around the cities that used to feed the cities. Mm. Um, if you can link those two areas up, I think it's a, it's already a big step. As much at the moment, uh, you know, I, I think the urgency that we have now is that like you know, there's a real need to change the the direction of the big ship, right? So like, in terms of putting food on the agenda politically, it's 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 it, it sort of has to come from the state at the moment. It's so big the the problem, and and all the f- the funding is going in the other direction. So like. I think it, it, get, raising awareness is, is just is, is is also massively important. It's, it's just to realize, okay, how does how does those how do those systems work? What are the issues involved? Um, you know, who, who, how can 
we how can we get involved in in, in trying to change them? Because I, I mean, it, it, urban if you're living in an urban area, you're you're a consumer of, of food, you, you know. And like mm-hmm. I mean, there's huge issues in, in cities with uh, access to food. I would say, like in terms of like just the availability of, of good food in, in cities is often you know very very poor. Uh, you see it going getting worse uh, as you get into you know more marginalised. Uh, parts of the cities yeah, where there's you know centres and spas providing for the population, and like I mean, that's the obligation of the city or or the or the state or whoever to try and get involved in setting up some sort of cooperative shops or you know places where people can get access at least to uh, to better quality foods or, or start conversations around those things. And we have good examples around the country. I mean, there's a place there, the co-op down in Limerick, has been doing good work. Um, in kind of linking up farmers, uh, an outlet for farmers in one side, and a place where uh, people can kind of learn more about how food systems work and access uh, better quality food on the other. I mean, there's a huge problem with food elitism in Ireland and uh, this idea that good food is for people who can afford it. And yeah, yeah. I, always, I say like almost a fetishized idea of what food is like, you know, which is just absurd because, I mean, the, the, the traditional Irish diet is a very good diet you know, and the, mm. the vegetables that we can grow here and, the, and like, the whether you're into meat or dairy or whatever it is or not, I mean, that's another whole question. But, like, I mean, the Irish environment can produce very high-quality food um, pretty easily, actually, and it should e- easily be able to provide its the entire population of people living on this island with high-quality food. And the fact that we're not doing that is a systemic problem that we could all have mm. to kind of address. And, I mean, I, I don't know what the first steps are, but, I mean, that's the, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's something that we need to kind of put onto the activist agenda, onto the kind of political agenda, onto the social agenda, and try and say, okay, these are all this huge knock-on impacts from having a better food system in terms of people's health, in terms of community health, in terms of we're only beginning to realise that now. I think you know the the benefits there are from spending time outside, spending time yeah yeah uh, working in in nature and things like that. I mean, and and like I mean, we've seen it here on, on our farm where we invite people out to do work days. People are dying to get out to, to, to uh, shovel manure, like you know. <laughs> I can stand out here going, you know, let me at it because I've been sitting behind a computer for five days and I, you know I actually feel like I'm doing something, you know, productive. And do you know what I mean? It, it's 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 really uh, it's remarkable, like you know. Mm. Uh, and so, like, I think that's something that we have to tap into that 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 kind of desire that there is there for people to kind of you know engage with food production very directly like you know yeah that's something we had have lucy o'hagan on as well she's um an ethnobotanist and a, a foraging instructor yeah. um and that's what the major thing we were, we were talking about was uh the kind of the the emptiness people feel being so cut off from nature and uh and therefore kind of cut off from each sure. other as well you know um so what what kind of solutions would you see to that in terms because i think a major part of this will be getting more people back to farming more like a, a greater diversity of farming styles and a greater number of people doing it. Yeah. Um. So what what Absolutely. kind of steps could be taken? I know the state will have a part to play, but um, just in general, what? Uh, well, we need we need people to take that decision. I mean, I think, I mean, if there's an issue with access to land in Ireland, we need to, we need a campaign and for access to land for for young people who want to start a farm. I mean, it's it's actually very difficult to get going if you want yeah, to do yeah. something in Ireland at the moment because the system is very much locked into. You know, a kind of hierarchical, a hereditary system mm. of you know farming families where if you have land, you you have the land, and you kind of you know 
you get your green cert so you can get the subsidies and you can get you know you can continue on doing it even if it's not what you want to do with your life you know so like we have, we have to allow the people that want to farm uh, and want to do something like that uh, a pathway in and, and you know it's one of the things we talked about in Talib Bureau is to say we have to sort of create a way that people can kind of get from the stage where they're really interested in in doing something positive that they can actually start doing it you know and that, and that can take it can take a long time to get something set up mm. so like I mean you have to have uh, help along the way but that's where we tap into the, that good will that is out there towards uh, working with the land and, and re-engaging with, with, with nature. Because, I mean, that's a great opportunity for people to learn as well. So, like, I mean, I don't know. I mean, there's, there's so many things that, you, that need to happen kind of at the same time. Mm. Um, I, I think the access to land one is, is certainly one that has to be kind of looked at because, you know, if you have land, you can get started. If you don't have the land, you, you can't do anything. So, like, I mean, if there's an issue around that, and I think there is in Ireland because the land prices are very high in Ireland, yeah, yeah. and uh, and it's very difficult to get good quality lease agreements on land, as in long-term renewable leases. So, like, you can get short-term leases, renew, you know, single-year lease. But, like, if you want to get a good lease that will give you seven years or another seven years or whatever, you can even try and get started very hard. So... Uh, yeah, I think those are things that we need to look at. And if, if the, I would say, if the interest is there, if, the, if there's, if, if there are people out there that we can look at and go, okay, we've got a, we've got a kind of uh, critical mass of people that are that don't have land that want land, then that, that's that's a campaign, and that's that's something we can work on, you know. Yeah, yeah. But um, I suppose it's just finding out how if if that if that critical mass is out there or not. Yeah, is that something Talib Bio would be involved in, kind of looking into in terms of like supporting people to get? I think abso- absolutely. Like, I mean, one of the things Via Campesino talk about a lot is the agrarian reform. You know, and mm. I mean, I think it's a good term because it covers the whole uh, gamut, let's say, of the you know of of agriculture from access to land to skills, training, their resources. You know, it covers like you know markets, you know, and all those things that are kind of part of how society manages it. So, like an agrarian reform program for Ireland would make a lot of sense. I think we've we've gone so far the wrong direction. Uh, it's certainly time to move back the other way. And, and I think, I mean, there's so much that needs to be done out in the existing farms in terms of agroforestry, in terms of rebuilding soils, and you know, looking at different ways of of grazing animals and integrating grazing animals with with woodlands and things like that. Yeah. Um, you know, there's, there's actually, Ireland's an incredibly rich country agriculturally. The potential is huge because we have abundant water and, you know, we actually have quite a mild climate. So we're very lucky in many ways and it's, you know, it's, it's a waste to see the whole country just being used for ryegrass to pump the dairy and beef into McDonald's burgers. It's, yeah, it's yeah. a travesty. Yeah. yeah. You know? Uh, that uh, brings you yeah. on to, we're nearly time for us to wrap up now, but, um, so we've been talking about yeah. how to get more people back to farming, but in terms of uh, diversifying the styles of farming and uh, what we actually grow here, you just start touching on that there. Uh, it's something we, we kind of mull over here between myself and Eric, um, being two lads who live in the city and have never worked on a farm in our lives. Uh, the, the ideas <laughs> we bounce around a lot would be the notion of paying farmers for performing different different ecosystem services, so like maintaining forestry, uh, and there's precedent for it, like the if you look at the burn project where farmers are paid to kind of maintain hedgerows to maintain yeah. the wild flora and fauna, or the hen harrier project is another one. Um, is that something you would have looked into much, or what do you is, is that something that would be feasible to kind of replicate across the whole island? I, I think absolutely, yeah. I mean, uh, the things like how they talk about high nature value farming, or um, mm. uh, you know, programs where you're farming for different ends. I mean, it, 
the, the, the sort of objective, and I've heard Chagas uh, representatives say this, you know, you have to maximize your output per hectare kind of is the idea, you know. Yeah. So, like, I mean, there's no incentive to maximize other things per hectare, maximize your biodiversity per hectare, maximize your, you know, um, your wildlife, etc. per hectare. And that requires a cultural change in how farmers look at the land, how they think about the land, which again means education programs, means talking about, you know, opening up spaces for that. And they've done that very well in the burn because I think they've they actually engaged the, the farming population very early on in the project and found out what would work for them. And, yeah, yeah. And that's, that's, it's, it's also quite a particular... Uh, Quite a particular environment, you know. The, the burn is is quite unique, but I think there's definitely t- potential to replicate that around the country. I would say though, as well, I mean, I think it, it has to come from farmers too, because there's been a tendency for farmers to follow the, you know, the. When I worked in Brussels, a woman from the Commission used the term "the carrot and the stick," talking about how they controlled farmers, okay. you know. Yeah. The carrot being the funding and the stick being the regulation. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's that's not a great way of of, of of engaging with any group of people in society because it, it, it creates a kind of sense of, uh, you know, uh, entitlement kind of in one hand and then, you know, but, but like sort of subjugation on the other end really yeah. from like, you know, control and uh, but else you're also kind of like rewarded for certain things. So it, it, like I said, it, has to, it should, it should ideally come from, from people who, who want to take care of the land in a good way anyway. Mm. And that's just a case of education and trying to get people and, 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 and not putting the pressure on to produce as much as possible, which is again, the problem. So like, I mean, it's 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 sacrilege to talk about reducing production in Ireland, but that's what we should be talking about. Yeah, you know, if we talk about reduce, reducing production of, of beef and dairy and increasing the like, the outputs of things like biodiversity and and increasing our you know native woodland cover and all those other things. So, yeah, I yeah. don't know. They're, they're big. They're big questions. But I mean, that's what that's the conversation we're trying to get started. And it's good that you're uh, that you've got you've got those conversations in your minds already, and you kind of understand them. You know, but it's. Yeah. Um, well, that's that's kind of the big picture problem is the the across the board where the regardless of what industry you're in, it's the emphasis is on growth, continued growth, economic growth. Uh, exactly. And if you're not growing, you're dying, kind of thing. But that's that's a recipe for disaster if ever there was one. Um, so it's kind exactly. of moving away from yeah. that across the board is what we need to be doing. Um, well, growing, I mean, and doing things for non-economic outcomes sometimes, like I mean. I hated the idea of putting a value, economic value, on biodiversity in Ireland, but that seems to be how they do it in order to justify protecting it. You know, yeah. so like I mean, but I think we need to take a values-based as opposed to an economics-based or some sort of to reorganize how we think about those things, and so that we're thinking about them in a much more, you know, I suppose it means freeing people up to to make those decisions. For, uh, sometimes farmers are forced into into decisions. I wouldn't say forced, but they, they make decisions on an economic basis as opposed to a environmental one or whatever. Mm. So, like, I mean, you have to create a situation where people are free to make those decisions on an environmental basis and make the right decision on that basis. That means that they they need to, their income needs to be you know covered for that or you know. So, like, I don't know how you go about that, but I mean, it's certainly good to have the, the to get the ball rolling on the. On the discussion, you know, and yeah, I mean, yeah. if there's more people working the land, I think that's going to have a, a better knock-on effect anyway. Because the more people that are, are out there, the more the more spaces there are for biodiversity, and small farms are much better at, at increasing biodiversity than, than big farms. You know, just mm. creates more there's, more there's more niches there. You know. Yeah, yeah, sound. Listen, we're ne- we're nearly at half an hour there, so I think we'll have to wrap up. But um, I really appreciate yeah. you taking the time out to talk to us and. Um, 
I hope to speak Great. to you again in the future. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, if you've never worked in a farm before, you've got one here. You can come and you can come and uh, have a go at it here. Sounds Not too yeah. bad, huh? <laughs> yeah, I'll grab the shovel. See you next week. Yeah, okay, good man. <laughs> good luck. Thanks a million. Thanks a million. See you next time. Bye bye. Bye bye. Right, so that was uh, that was Fergal Anderson there, a person with a bit of hands-on experience in the the areas we're talking about. So it's good to hear from Fergal. We won't, won't waste too much time wrapping things up now. Um, part two, which is coming out next week, we'll be continuing this conversation about about food sovereignty and just about it's we're kind of m- moving slightly from that into the bigger issue of how we relate to our habitat. I saw a very good image online a while ago. It was um, an outline of a person standing in a circle of outlines of animals and plants. And above that it said ego. And in the next picture, the silhouette of the person was standing in the circle as part of the circle. Yeah. And it said nature. Yeah. And that's... I don't know if we're going to exactly explore that too much in the next episode, but that's something that I would definitely like to keep talking about, basically. I don't know if we can do an episode on exactly. It's, but it's a big philosophical problem with humanity at the moment in general that we do consider ourselves to be something outside of and above nature. Yeah. And nature is something that we can decide to be benevolent to or not or do whatever we want with that we can own and control. And that goes in with all of the logic that goes behind the capitalism and the, the monocrop culture and all the rest of it. It's all part of the same thing. Here's the thing. We are a part of nature, whether we like it or not. It's not us deciding we're going to go back to... We are nature. Mm. We, we live in it. Even if we live in a really horrible ecological habitat, it's still an ecological habitat. Yeah. You just have to decide if we want it to be a really dirty, filthy one habitat uh, with mostly just only humans and like a few rats that can survive in a horrible urban area and like mm. you know seagulls or whatever you have in Dublin yourself or mm. if that's going to change into something that's going to be much more diverse and we are part of nature whether we like it or not the arrogance needs to end yeah. essentially you know yeah. that's kind of the starting point from a philosophical point of view anyhow yeah and um, that reminds me um, of another image I saw on social media which was it was actually an ad and it was huh. so fucking annoying it was an ad for some product or I can't remember what it was like some sign of quote unquote eco product like a fucking yeah. I don't know shoes made out of bamboo or something like that right? <laughs> um, and it said perfect for people who care about the environment <laughs> as though that's like as though it's this is a hobby of mine clearly a you know? throwaway just oh yeah. I, I, I know of something that the hippies will love yeah. they'll sell this to the hippies and make turn a lovely profit off it like. yeah it's like you know I'm, inter- I'm interested in the environment you know I'm, I'm mainly into watching cartoons but like I have my, another hobby of mine is being into the environment no like but like that's just so cynical and oh god I was just yeah I, people who I can't even form sentences in that so implied in that is that they're that the rest of the people are not interested in the environment and they no. probably shouldn't be and it's not it's not their thing yeah You'd be interested in it whether you like it or not, essentially, you know? Not to be too kind of like given orders, but that's just a fact you cannot change. Yeah. If you breathe air, if you eat food, if you're made out of organic bloody flesh, you have an interest <laughs> in it whether you like it or not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's, we'll wrap that up, I suppose, for this episode. As we said at the start, get in touch if you want to talk to us about that on turningearthradio at gmail.com or on Facebook, Turning Earth. Um, so there's one last thing I want to talk about. Um because there's, uh, there's a bit of a time limit on this, these draft climate action plans. Um, and he, I've seen this advertised. I'm actually pretty... This is something that government has done that I'm kind of impressed with, although there could definitely be more advertising around this, but I saw these posters on bins around town and on bus stops, uh, dublinclimatechange.ie. Yeah. You can go onto this website and learn about your local areas, or in this case, city councils, which is my local area, Dublin City. You can learn about their climate mm-hmm. action plan. Yeah. Um. So it's the draft climate action plan. It's like this is what they're suggesting. 
we need to do as a as a city going forward uh so it's and it's really good actually the website the information on it is really good like what is climate change how's it going to affect dublin why should we we should act and what we can do and you, you can read the draft plan and the, th- the reason i want to bring it up is because up until the 25th of march uh you can make submissions based uh, based on the plan so things that you think should be in it things that you think should be improved or should be changed about the plan you can make submission as an individual or as a community group yeah. uh, for that so I think everybody is as many people as possible should submit to that because these things only work if, if enough people yeah I'm also in DCC myself well I mean it wouldn't matter you'd be in a different council anyway uh, so up until the 25th of March you can make submission uh, so you could try and do it as an individual but also do it if, you, if you're part of any sports clubs or any community groups or just any any groups or collectives you can make submission as a as the group as well as an individual and something i'm going to be working over over the next few days is making a i'll try and make kind of a generic a generic submission i suppose with some things i outlined and i'll be put that up on the on the facebook page so if you want to if you're not sure where to start this is something that's very good now to have input on if, if you were thinking about sending us an email having input this would be a good one you know yeah, yeah. But you know, or I, I, even if you want to make a submission just yourself to the council why not but that's what i'm saying that's what i'll, I'll, I'll i'm going to make one myself um but I'll put one. I'll put one up, just like a, bit, a brief outline of one, so someone can mm. either just add your name to it or add your name and flesh out the little put the points on it or whatever. But just as a starting point, if you're not sure where to start, um, I'll put this kind of template up as a as a guide, I suppose. Just if you're not sure what to do, because I, I I'm not sure what to do about this either. But I asked a friend of mine who's in Young Friends of the Earth. They made a submission to the Citizens Assembly. And she sent me uh, the submission they made, so I'm kind of using that as a guide for. That's very good because you, you know they'll have, they'll have it well. Yeah, because exactly. they're like professionals or whatever, like us, you know. Yeah, yeah, because that, that's what was stopping me. I was like, oh, I don't know how to lay this thing out, how to make it look proper, yeah. or whatever, um, or even where to start. Like, there's so many things you could talk about. I'm not sure what to include, but oh, yeah. what makes it easier is you are responding to their climate action plan, so you can use that as a starting point. So, what, what, what should be better about this? But it's all, it's all fair, the information is all there, easy to access. So go and have a look at that. Once again, it's DublinClimateChange.ie, and you'll find all this stuff on that website. Very good. Let's do it. So just to flag a couple of events that are coming up, um, the Extinction Re- Rebellion protest movement, which started recently in the UK, in England, um, a branch has set up now in Ireland, nationwide. So check out their website, uh, well, check out their Facebook page, Extinction Rebellion Ireland. They're hosting meetings all around the country. They have a, there's an event coming up tomorrow, actually, so you probably won't have heard this podcast until after the fact, but a funeral for humanity taking place in Dublin city centre. They're marching from the spire to... When's that uh, happening? Tomorrow, Sunday, ah. the, Sunday the third. No, we won't be by then, folks. Unfortunately, but uh, that happened. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, I, we might get this out tonight. You might be listening to this on a Saturday night. Who knows? Um, <laughs> who knows what's going to happen? Time's funny, isn't it? It um, is. But other than so, that funeral for humanity is coming up. But they've other events coming up. So keep an eye out on them. There's, they've got an email list as well. You can sign up for. Uh, so find them on Facebook, or just type it into a search engine, Extinction Rebellion Ireland, and also on March the fifteenth. Um, there's the Students Climate Action March also in Dublin City Centre um, linked into like the student strikes which are ongoing here and elsewhere in Europe um, I don't think there's anything else I can think of that's no. coming up there's uh, going to be a march on I think 12 or 1 o'clock on not directly related to the environment but important the 8th of March um, International Women's Day it's coming a week from today so there'll be stuff on in Dublin City Centre around that I think it's around 1 o'clock I'd imagine in the the spire and the like so keep an eye out for that because that's important uh, so we leave it at that that's the end of part one and next week you will hear us talking more shite about this and also talking to Lucy O'Hagan so uh, until then Slán Slán before you.